The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Dr. Steve Farber. Uh, his new book is Sick as Our Secrets, From Prescri- Prescription Drug Samples to Addiction, One Doctor's Journey to Hell and Back. Dr. Farber was a respected cardiologist at the top of his career when he became addicted to the prescription drug samples that were constantly brought to his office costing him his medical license and the life of a friend. Proving that physicians are not invincible to drug addiction, Dr. Farber shares his path from chemical dependency to recovery, apparently a battle that claims a life every 19 minutes. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, and I'm going to call you Steve, Dr. Steve Farber. Nice to have you here today. Well, thank you very much for having me on the air with you. Well, Steve, your book has been referred to as a very candid book. It's a very, you know, your story, you tell it in a very candid way. In the book, my first question is, why come out of the closet or why did you come out of the closet and share your story and write this book? Well, I believe that my story is powerful, and I'm hoping that it's inspiring to other people um, uh, to that will help them with their particular problems. The, the, the power of the book is really not just in the in the the fact that it describes my problems is that it also describes a solution. And I, I want people to understand that there is a solution to the problem of addiction. But in order to, you have to understand the magnitude of the problem first and how devastating it is. And I'm sure most people in our society know somebody who's an addict or they themselves are an addict in some way, shape, or form. We're all addicted to something. Uh, some of them are much more powerful than others and can be you know, more threatening than others to our lives. But the the book, the purpose of the book really is not just to be a revealing expose of my life, but it is more to describe the nature of the disease, how devastating it is, how it can bring somebody down from the top of the mountain, and how it can affect people in our society in every walk of life. It doesn't matter if you're a doctor or a lawyer or whatever, or just a, a, a person down the street. Um, that is a sickness that um, it has epi- become an epidemic. Most people don't understand <clears throat> that more people die from prescription drugs than from traffic accidents. And that's, a, that's a, <laughs> uh, a fact that a lot of people don't realize, that it's an incredibly common problem. Yeah, it is a common problem, as you say, and, I, and maybe that's what we can start out with, kind of defining the problem and what it is. And as you said in the beginning, um, everybody's, every, anybody can become addicted. And I think one of the things, because you're a physician, we tend to think in our society physicians are gods or we treat them that or godlike. They're not. And so how can doctors and medical professionals be addicted to drugs? It doesn't fit the profile. So, yeah. Well, a lot of us believe, unfortunately, um, that or expect doctors to be superhuman. And uh, a lot of people put doctors on pedestals and believe that they don't have their human frailties. And um, unfortunately, that's wrong. Uh, doctors are as human as the rest of us, and if anything, probably a little more prone to the problem of addiction than, than other professions. And the reasons for that are, first of all, the incredible 
uh, grueling nature of, of the profession. Uh, a lot of people don't understand the amount of hours that it takes to become a physician and how stressful training is and how stressful medical practice is. And there's a very high rate of um, depression in you know, people who are being who are training, uh, working over 100 hours a week. And uh, burnout, early burnout in this profession. And in my own particular situation, I went through a significant period of burnout and, uh, and depression. So if anything, um, the nature of the profession is, I think, lends itself more to uh, towards developing addiction uh, than many other careers. And is the other, it also that you have access to the drugs? I mean, doctors well, and nurses, you have access to prescription medications, and it, it, so it's right there. So if you're feeling depressed or you're feeling bad, or you, you know, it's very easy, isn't it, to just uh, kind of turn to the the, the medications because they're they're there in your office in the hospital. Uh, absolutely. Actually, you read my mind. That was going to be my next point because really the access is there. And, uh, and it be not just in prescriptions that are left in your office, but also the ability to write prescriptions. There's a lot of power in the pen when you're a physician. My own particular addiction started back in the 90s when Pfizer left a stockpile of 100 Xanax pills in my office. And initially when Xanax came out, I don't know how many of your, uh, the people in your audience have heard of Xanax. I'm sure quite a few people have. Um, but it was labeled uh, as a medication that for anxiety. It's in the it's in the family of Valium type derivatives. But it was labeled as not addicting. And uh, I was I was left a bottle in, in my office. And being a, a stressed out physician that had a lot of anxiety in my life, I decided I'd try it myself. So I, that's the other problem is that is the fact physicians tend to self medicate, and uh, it's very easy to when the drugs are right there. So I went ahead and tried the tried Xanax out, and it worked great. I mean, I was a new person, <laughs> you know. That's the problem of <laughs> feeling no pain, right? Yeah, exactly. I, I was able to. My anxiety was great. Initially, the, these drugs seduce you, and that's the best way I could put it. They they seduce you into help, making you believe that they're your friend and that they're helping your life. But as time went by, I realized that this drug was real. The pharmaceutical company really was not right about this. It was very addicting, and I became really kind of hooked on it after a relatively short period of time. And I okay, required it. Okay, be specific it. about that, though, because we get kind of general. You, I mean, you, okay, so you had the Xanax there. It was a sample, and, and uh, you decided you took one. You felt really good. But mm-hmm. then what's the, the, the slippery slope? I mean, because did you have a, do you think you, like, had a predisposition to taking medication or to becoming addicted? You know what I mean? Like, why didn't you... Why did you necessarily go down that road? Do you know what I'm trying to say? Like, okay, so you felt good, but did you have to necessarily become addicted to it? And can or well, you know, the you know initially there's um, you know a lot of denial when you start taking these medicines, and and you believe that if they're helping you, and that just go ahead and continue to take them. And I think it's a very insidious problem. First of all, that uh, these drugs do take over your life very gradually and uh, without you really even realizing it. And I had never had a problem in my life with addiction. Uh, I went through, you know, high school, college, medical school, without really any problems. But I think what, what made me much more prone to developing addiction it was going through severe burnout and uh, wanting to try to do anything. I got to a point of desperation where I was trying to find anything possible that would help me get out of that rut I was in and feel better about my life, feel make the pain of life a lot easier and being able to get through you know the daily struggle of my profession and uh, and I decided I'd try it. I think a lot of us as far as predisposition go, I think a lot of us have a predisposition in a sense to uh, becoming uh, addicts and all of us 
be honest with you, all of us are addicted to something. Uh, it may not be Xanax, but a lot of us, uh, if not all of us, are addicted to eating or to some, you know, something that's out there, whether even work. I mean, for me, I was a workaholic. Um, but it's very easy to hide your problems, what, emotional problems or physical problems behind a pill and or behind a, a, some food or alcohol, a lot of, you know, behind a lot of things. So yeah, they I mean, don't really take the time to we are, we are an addictive society. I mean, I think that Americans are used to, you're feeling bad, you're feeling sad, you take a drug, you smoke a cigarette, you eat, you overwork, uh, you know, so in the context of that, it, it is understandable how you could get addicted to How old were you? When I started Xanax, uh, I was in my 40s. <clears throat> but actually, my life spiraled out of control, really out of control when I was in my 50s. Because the, the addiction to Xanax turned into addictions to far worse things than Xanax. Right, so um, how long were you addicted to Xanax, and then when did that turn into something else, and what was it? I was actually addicted to Xanax for a number of years, and uh, I decreased the dose of the Xanax over time with some help. Uh, it's very, you have to wean very slowly off that medication. But the, the problem is that the Xanax was a symptom of a far deeper problem uh, for me. I think it was more of a spiritual sickness that was within me, emotional and spiritual sickness. And um, uh, essentially, I was trying to drown my problems behind a pill. And when I was in my 50s, I got so desperate, and I was so desperately looking for a way out uh, that I started to, started to use cocaine. And, and as sick as our secrets, I just described how my life spiraled out of control when I started using cocaine. And um, I, I started doing things I never, ever could have imagined doing when I was younger. Uh, I was taught to be a moral and ethical person and to be an ethical physician. But I started to disobey all the rules that I had learned growing up. And, uh, you know... It's, like it's what were those for, rules that you were disobeying that you were going? I mean, well, I mean, I was taught morality. I was taught to, um, you know, in my profession to be uh, a physician who didn't use drugs, to, you know, how to take care of my patients. And, you know, it, it, a lot of people feel that addiction is a moral defect, and it really isn't. Addiction is a disease and really not a moral defect. The moral pro- the problems that we have that we develop, uh, for example, doing things that are not, that we're not, we're taught not to do uh, really is just the, basically the, the, in the disguise of the, of the disease. It's just one of the uh, symptoms of the disease. Um, but addiction is, is a disease. It's not a moral, moral defect. All right, so you're um, talking about going from your 40s to your 50s, and it's getting worse. It's not Xanax. Now it's cocaine and maybe other drugs. But So in that whole process, I'm, were you in denial? What about colleagues or even or, or your family? Where did they, you know, were they aware of what you were doing or were you hiding it um, and and denying that you were into drugs or or what? Well, you know, the title of, of my book <clears throat> describes the secrets that I kept. Uh-huh. And um, the fact that as a physician or really not just as uh, in the medical profession but in any profession, we start leading a double life. And I led a double life for a number of years and um, uh, until it got to a point where I couldn't hide it anymore. Um, but my closest friends didn't even realize I had a problem. Um, it wasn't until my personality really started to change uh, that people began to take notice of that. And I did live in denial. Denial is a very powerful defense mechanism, and it makes you not really realize, not even want to think that you have a problem, that you have it under control. Don't worry about it. You can you can take just a little bit of this and feel better. Uh, well, for example, cocaine was a great cure for my depression. I mean, initially, 
when I used cocaine, I thought, okay, I can just use, and I knew, I knew that taking drugs was wrong, and I knew that it was illegal. And uh, I taught my patients for years never to use cocaine because it could give you a heart attack. But I went ahead and, and used it. That's the insanity of addiction. Addiction is basically uh, leads you to do things that are insane that you never would do otherwise. Um, but I became a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, and um, uh, leading a life that uh, that was in the shadows at home, but using drugs. And down and when it got really severe, it got to the point of uh, just before things totally cratered in my life, uh, and I lost my career. That it got to the point where I started going to work with these drugs in my system. And, um, and it began to affect my performance as a physician. Uh, but it's very easy to drown yourself in work and not address your problems. And that's one of the things workaholics, for example, and doctors are workaholics but for the most part. And, but they're not, that's the only profession that, where, where they're workaholics. That, that a lot of professions you know, lend themselves to working really, really hard. You, it's very easy to not want to look at your problems. My problems are much deeper. My problems were more emotional and spiritual. And working hard and... Giving, putting all those hours in at work, um, you know, just helped me to avoid them for many years. Yeah, and, so you didn't uh, have to take a look at it. And, uh, right. and you're talking about a situation where you were middle-aged. Um, do you think, and does one have a, a predisposition to this, something that you could have predicted, let's say, even growing up as a kid? I mean, were any, did anything in your personality, in your family situation, you know, as a social worker and dealing with people with addictions um, and obviously having family and friends who have been affected as well, there's always that, that uh, pre-morbid functioning. Like what, is there anything that you were emotionally, um, ha- happened to you? Um, obviously you were very smart, intelligent, you must have done well in school to get what you went to, uh, uh, you had a residency at Baylor University and um, so, but anything emotionally in your in your younger years, in elementary school, middle school, high school, that could have predicted this kind of a, a reaction? Well, I had no no family history. A lot of uh, alcoholics uh, have a family history of alcoholism and a lot of addictions. I, I did not have any of that. Um, I'm really the first in my family to have that problem. I think that um, when I was in my teens, I was abused sexually, and I think that um, that changed my life forever. And I believe that that also devastated me emotionally, and I never addressed that problem at the time. I grew up in the, in the 60s, uh, and, uh, and at that time, um, you know, life was a lot simpler, and there is not, the drugs were not around at that point in time uh, that they are, as they are now, um, and the access to them was not there. But um, I think that the, the, it, what addiction comes down to in my mind, it's, it's a... Uh, it's an emotional and spiritual disease, and I think it's, it comes down to loving yourself. And I think a lot of addicts really um, do not love themselves deep down. I think that it's they a lot of times don't feel like they fit in, that they're around pegs trying to get in the square holes, and um, you know just don't feel, you know, or they feel like outcasts. They just and they drink and drug to try to make themselves feel better about themselves and about their lives. And I think it's hiding a, a deep, deep problem. Uh, and uh, abuse is very, very common in addicts. A lot of people who are alcoholics and addicts uh, that I know have suffered from some form of abuse growing up. Yeah, well, I mean, that's a, being abused in your teens. What were you, 12, 13 years old? And was this a, a family member or somebody on the outside or something obviously you didn't share with anybody or it sounds like you didn't? Um, and, and, uh, yeah. yeah, I wrote about it in the book. Uh, yeah. The... the um, 
uh, I didn't share at the time with you know with anybody, and I just kept it inside. And it was not a family member; it was it was in quotes a friend that I knew, an older friend. And um, you know, but I at the, you know at that point in time, I was too embarrassed to even want to talk about. It. I was too ashamed. You know, I think the shame of what happened really uh, led me to just keep it a secret uh, for many many years. And it wasn't until um, I was going through my recovery phase in my 50s uh, from addiction that I really addressed it. So it's not till about 40 years later that I really that the problem really was uncovered and I dealt with it. That's a long time. I mean, between you know, as a teenager and then your 50s um, dealing with the problem. But okay, so the, I mean that you sort of just hid that. I guess that just became something that was buried in your psyche, and you just did not deal with that. And you went on to college and and medical school. Um, what's unique about your story? I mean, is this what would you say is unique about your story, or is it unique? You know, I think that the the you know the story is unique to me because it's my own. But the story is is just an example of many many stories that are out there. It's it. Uh, there are so many devast- uh, stories of devastation and, and uh, the trail of devastation that addiction leaves in our lives. Um, when I uh, go to twelve step meetings, I hear stories that are far worse than mine. I just happen to write about mine, and the reason I wrote about it was to try to help other people uh, to relate to me who might be able to relate to me uh, and try to get help for their problems early before it's too late uh, to get help. Um, so what I'm trying to do with my book is try to help inspire other people uh, to to, re- to recognize their problem and come forward with it and not be ashamed about it and not fear retribution. Um, I, I think part of the reason I didn't come forward with my own story was I was afraid. I was afraid what other people would think about me. I was afraid about what would happen with my career. Now, ironically, my career went down the tubes. You know, when when things really went bad, uh, and my, when I was 55, so my fear was basically was realized. <laughs> but it was realized yeah. because I didn't come forward and reach out for help. I didn't want to reach out for help, uh, just like I didn't want to reach out for help when I was abused. And I decided it's easy to hide these things in your con- subconscious and to not want to deal with them. But um, there's a there are a lot of unique stories out there. But what was the thing that happened to you that you decided, okay, you know, the turning point or whatever you want to call it, like I am going to do something about this. What was well, I needed a little help <laughs> with that. <laughs> um, you know, there are a couple of things. First of all, my some of my closest friends and loved ones got together and performed an intervention uh, on me, which you know, for, they sat me down and told me, "You've got a big problem here. We see through you." And even during that intervention, I was in denial. I argued with them. I don't have a problem. I don't have a problem. But they were very blunt with me and basically didn't give me an alternative but to try to get help. But I fought and struggled uh, against that. But what really, really um, uh, brought me to the realization I had to change my life was when my career, when I lost my career, the Board of Medical Examiners suspended my license six and a half years ago because of the problems that developed from my use of drugs. And I'm just now getting my, my career back six and a half years later. Thank God uh, uh, for the, the sobriety for the last six and a half years. I'm on the verge of getting my career back. Um, and hopefully that will come to fruition very soon. But so see, what I'm something happens with one of your patients as well, right? Um, oh, that, I'm yeah. sorry, I don't understand. I said something happened with one of your patients, didn't it, yeah. as well? Yeah. What was that? What, what, share with us what happened. Well, I had, I, fortunately, none of my patients were hurt by my by my illness. But that, that was a matter of time because it would have something would have happened. Um, I did have a blackout after one of my procedures, 
And when I was talking to a family, I just suddenly didn't realize where I was. I just It was like I had a um, – I just stared straight ahead and stopped talking. And it wasn't until my – my physician assistant shook me and said, "What's what's wrong here?" You know, she, mm-hmm. it was just uh, very very unusual. And um, I woke up and uh, basically out of this, it was like it was like being in a trance. And it was drug drug induced. There's no question about it. And everybody was looking straight ahead at me. And what really got to me was at a point where right after that happened, my physician assistant said, "Dr. Farber, you know, I admire you as a physician, but right now I wouldn't send my family member to you." And that hit me. You yeah, know, that's and powerful. Stuff. That that was very powerful. They're very powerful, and it made me. It hit me between the eyes. But fortunately, no patients were harmed. But, you know, the board of medical examiners did the right thing. I was a danger to myself, and at the time, I was a danger to others. And I think that um, it was their action actually that um, finally brought me to my knees and made me realize that I had to address this problem, or I was going to die. Um, so uh, that that's um, you know really what it came down to is if I wanted to live or wanted to die, and I decided to try to, to live. Uh, Stephen, you ha- do you have um, because I know that, and I don't know what the statistics are, but we were talking about that doctors and nurses, or doctors particularly, isn't that the a profession that has the highest incidence of drug addiction uh, because of what we discussed before, because of the access to drugs? Do you associate, or do you have a support group of other physicians? I mean, you're talking about the twelve step program. I want to talk about that, but other physicians, people in your field who have the same problem. There are a lot of other physicians, and I think that's part of the, the audience I want to address in my book is the, the medical profession. And the, there are statistics that are out there that uh, the latest I read was in a British study that uh, stated that one out of that, that 16% of physicians are impaired by or have a problem with drugs or alcohol. And that's a pretty high statistic. You know, that's um, almost one out of five physicians have a problem. And I think when we all go to our doctor, we don't want to believe that our doctor has got a problem <laughs> with, with drugs or alcohol. None of us want to think that. But it, it's a fairly common problem. And I think the other thing is that when it, this problem starts early because they've found also that depression is very common in people who are training for the medical profession and burnout. And that one out of four or five people in training uh, have significant develop their problems early on in their career and that this problem over time gets doesn't get better it doesn't it gets worse well, so and, does that um, say something about the way we're training our physicians maybe we have to kind of step back you know the addictions being becoming addicted as a result of being depressed as a result of the kind of tra- training that doctors get maybe there's something inherently wrong with that absolutely i think that there is a huge problem in training and it wasn't until recently that this was addressed um, now it you're not supposed to work more than 80 hours a week as an intern. Uh, before, when I was an intern, I worked wasn't uncommon to work 100 hours a week, uh, over 100 hours a week. I barely got home, and uh, when I did get home, when I did get home, I'd say hi to my wife and fall in bed and go to sleep. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and that's not a real kind of life to go on for many years. You can't go on for too long like that. But it's like a hazing process, and I think um, the philosophy I think of a lot of the institutions is that. Let's see if he can take it, you know, and we want to teach them as as much as we can in a short period of time here. And, and if they have to work, you know, 120 hours a week to do it, then we're going to do that. Let's see. It's almost like how, how tough is he or her. And um, I think training needs to get more humane. And I think that um, we tend to expect an awful lot of our, of our young physicians. I think that we, we produce some of the best physicians in the world in this country. There's no doubt about it. But we all, it comes at a price. We also produce some of the sickest physicians in the world. So 
So it, it, it's hard to really understand how deep this problem is and that there are ways to, to help uh, to deal with this. And I think the other thing that's important is that, uh, like pilots or other professions where people's lives are at stake, we should do some random, te- random testing of our, of our physicians and nurses as well. Should, there should be random drug tests. because yeah, there isn't, Now there isn't any random drug testing? No, no, no there's not. not. Yeah. And there should be. I think, yeah. you know, just like pilots go through this, there should be some um, uh, some testing done on physicians because it is. It's, when you're talking about 16 to 20 percent of our physicians having a problem, that's pretty high. Yeah. And so we're I just ignoring the statistics, aren't we? I mean, aren't we kind of just into the denial? Maybe you know, you're talking about individuals being in denial, yourself included. Maybe as a society, we're in denial. I mean, we have this certain picture or whatever, uh, you know, the picture on the wall of what we think our physicians should or are like, and it's just not true when you look at the statistics in, in terms of, well, we're talking about addiction, right? Well, as a society as a whole, we're, you hit the nail on the head. We're in denial as a society about the problem of addiction, the nature of it. We, we sweep it under the rug. You know, until somebody dies like Michael Jackson or Whitney Houston, we don't really talk about it, you know, very much, except, you know, there are organizations and there's, there are some agencies, governmental agencies, but as a society, we tend to want to sweep under the rug and not address it. And um, it's easier to do that than to really try to get to the root of the problem. But uh, what about how medical practices are, our doctors practice medicine? I mean, in terms of prescribing its drugs for any kind of symptom or problem that a patient has, that's the first, it seems to me, the first line of defense. You go to a physician, I've got a headache, I've got a stomach ache. They never really try to address maybe what the underlying problem is. But, you know, well, then take this, take this medication, and they'll give, you know, or, and I, I can't tell you how many and I'm exaggerating, but bags of medication that I, I don't take it. I mean, I, you know, I, I don't either get the prescription filled or I throw it away and I don't use it and I get better anyway. You know, but, doctors very often take the easy way out and uh, prescribe a pill when instead of looking much more deeply into a problem. And part of that, we have a fast-paced society, and uh, it, there's a lot of pressure for physicians to get, get people in and out of the door nowadays, especially to see large numbers of patients. And I think a lot of physicians take the least time-consuming method and the easiest, easiest way and prescribe a pill. And you have to admit, though, the problem goes both directions because patients often demand a pill. A lot of patients don't want to look at the problem deeper. They just, give me a pill and let me leave. and Give me a pill, give me a pill to solve my problem. Uh, and I think that, um, that physicians tend to fall in that trap of giving patients what they want. But on the other hand, I think physicians are poorly trained uh, in how to look for the underneath to, under, to look at these problems more deeply and to look at alternatives to pills. Um, in a, a lot of other societies, you know, other than American, you know, here in America, there, you know, there are other methods uh, in Eastern medicine, for example, uh, to treat things other than a, a pill. And that we call it integrative medicine. And um, I've learned a lot more about integrative medicine, and, but it's pretty yeah, trained that way. I want to talk about integrative medicine because I think that's kind of, to me, it is, I don't know if it's a, more than a trend, I think it's kind of the wave of the future, it seems to me. It's becoming much more acceptable. So let's take a break, and when we come back, we'll talk about the integrative medicine with uh, Dr. Steve Farber, author of Sick as Our Secrets, From Prescription Drug Samples to Addiction, One Doctor's Journey to Hell and Back. We'll be back in a minute. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. Uh, don't go away. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. 
Want to know what's going on behind the scenes with your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network host? How about what's new with our network? Make sure you check out the iRadio blog, a look at what's hot at Voice America and beyond. Visit www.iradioblog.com today. Get the inside scoop on every channel on our network, including breaking news, featured guests, blog posts from our hosts, and much more. Make sure you sign up for our newsletter for even more inside action. Visit iradioblog.com today and stay connected. Now there's a new destination for video content, voiceamerica.tv, just like our radio channels and so much more. Voice America Variety, Health and Wellness, Business, Sports, Green Talk, Power Up Motorsports, and 7th Wave Network now have their own video channel components. Plus, check out exclusive programming, including movies, music, educational courses, science and history, current events, and short features. High-definition, premier-quality programs available 24-7, voiceamerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us support. You. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. You are listening to The Catherine Zox Show. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone on voiceamericavariety.com and World Talk Radio. Uh, joining me this morning has been Dr. Stephen Farber. He's author of Sick as Our Secrets, From Prescription Drug Samples to Addiction, One Doctor's Journey to Hell and Back, and that's what we've been talking about, his journey, his book uh, um, from uh, going to hell and back, literally. But before we took the break, we started talking about integrative medicine, and uh, I want to kind of like expound upon that, Steve, because I think it's really important, and uh, obviously you do too. Uh, it's um, something that's kind of emerged over the past, what would you say, 10 years? Um, that we've been I'd kind say of that's taking... about right. I yeah. think it's been a slowly progressive uh, process here in our society. So integrative medicine, it's, you know, I mean, as a layperson, um, most of us, it's, it's East and Eastern and Western medicine combined using the best of both, I guess. So explain it to us in, in um, the kind of medical genre. Well, I, I think that holistic medicine or integrative medicine are very basically the same concept. Uh, it involves treating the entire person emotionally, spiritually, physically. And, and um, this is done on, on all three levels. Um, the combination of Eastern and Western approaches to medicine are it's very powerful, and um, that's something that I think needs to is becoming more and more introduced in our society is that combination. And I think that unfortunately, at least when I was in training, and I think the training hasn't changed that much. Doctors are not trained to use in anything related to Western medicine, whether it's Oriental uh, Chinese. Medicine or uh, Indian medicine, such as uh, ancient Ayurvedic techniques that are used. Um, doctors are not trained in this area. We're trained. We're geared towards prescribing 
medications were geared towards intervening with surgery. With so give us an example. Let's, you have a patient who comes into your office um, and complaining of, I mean, you you know, set up some kind of a complaint. And in Western medicine, what would they do? You know, prescribe a pill, you know, give the patient a pill and medication and go home and you'll get better. Western medicine, uh, Eastern medicine would be different. It, and if you were do, looking at the patient as a, in a holistic kind of way, well, I think it's important to, to do a thorough diagnostic evaluation on a patient, <clears throat> but I, and I think that um, there. All right, give us a case yeah. example. Well, for example, with for somebody coming with chest pain in my profession, you know, it's for the typical complaint with chest pain, and uh, you want to look at their cholesterol. You want to look at um, the underlying risk factors for heart disease. You want to look at their blood sugar, check their blood pressure, and but you also want to uh, do procedures such as a stress test, and if it's warranted to go further with your evaluation with that. And I'm not, these, these techniques are very important and I think shouldn't be left by the wayside. However, um, a lot of times when we order very expensive tests, a lot of times they're unnecessary. And, um, uh, but they're done because people are afraid of being sued if they don't. We live in a very litigious society and that's part of the equation here that they have to look at, uh, that doctors are very often forced to do things by our society, by the litigious nature of our society. Oh, see, so what you're saying is, I want to stop you on that one, because really what you're saying is doctors will order tests not based on anything that has to do with treating the patient. It has to do with insurance getting sued or with getting, it has to do with legal, the legal ramifications, but has absolutely nothing to do with treating the patient in terms of whatever they're presenting problem is. Very common for people to come to the office and demanding tests. And they've read about the latest and greatest technology, and they really want to get this test done. And, um, you know, I think doctors go overboard with their testing a lot of times and will order tests that may be not very necessary. And there are a lot of reasons. I mean, certainly there's financial incentive involved here. Uh, The the fact is that our current medical system, I know it's changing, but our current system is geared not towards prevention but towards intervention. Um, what I'm saying here is that doctors are not reimbursed financially for currently for preventing disease. You know, the biggest financial remuneration is for doing heart caps, doing uh, stress tests. So we're giving physician uh, financial incentives to go elsewhere than prevention. We're not reimbursed to sit there for a half hour and talk to our patients about what they shouldn't do. And unfortunately, doctors, you know, will fall into that trap financially where they go towards, you know, where the money is. Like, like a lot of professions, you don't want to believe doctors will do this, but unfortunately, whether it's, it's not a situation where I think it's necessarily a conscious, not a conscious level, but sometimes a subconscious uh, level that, you know, I'm going to go ahead and order this test, partially for financial remuneration, but also because I'm afraid if I don't do this test and I miss something, I'm going to get sued. And, um, and that's a whole other topic here, but I think that um, a lot of unnecessary things are done in our society because of the lawsuits that, are, that people can bring towards doctors. But we're not, also not trained to look at physicians from a whole, the standpoint of, their, of emotion and the mind-body connection. I think that's the important thing with integrative medicine is that it brings together the mind and the body. It integrates all, the whole entire person, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. And uh, doctors should be trained to look at all three areas very closely, not just look at, at the body that's unconnected to the mind. Uh, they, the two need to be connected. Mm-hmm. Well, they are connected. Whether physicians want to address it or not is one thing, but 
I don't think we're disagree or anyone would disagree that the body and the mind are connected. I mean, if you are feel stressed out, it, it, you what you you secrete certain I mean hormones, cortisol or whatever chemicals that really can have an impact on your body in a negative way, right? I mean, the whole mind body we are connected. Our head, our brain. Oh, absolutely. And, yeah. And, and then and then you're talking about spiritually as well. Let's get into the spiritual thing because spiritually, um, you know, has a lot to do with the twelve step program um, that you've been involved on, so been, are involved in. So let's talk about that in terms of of um, helping you get through uh, your particular addictive addiction problem. Well, you know, I've learned you know that the twelve step program is a way to live life. When I before I started attending twelve step meetings. You know, I thought that that was just out there, you know, that the 12 steps were for people who really had a problem, and that's not me, okay? And I used to think that Alcoholics Anonymous was a cult, and that just a group of people who are alcoholics. And when I first went to my, went to my first AA meeting, I thought that I didn't fit in. My gosh, I'm not like these people. You know, I used to, my conception was that uh, addicts and alcoholics were people who lived under the bridge or out in the, you know, in the street cutters. And, you know, but then I suddenly was one of them, <laughs> you know, I... <laughs> You know, I, I was there too, and, and I, as a physician, and I went from having everything to nothing overnight. And um, you know, it, so I quickly realized that, you know, that I was very similar, we, very similar to the people in that room. Um, and one of the things they tell you is to look for the similarities, not the differences, when you first go to these meetings. And you know, there's my other people were telling my story when I went in there. I heard the same. Issues, spiritual issues. I heard the same emotional issues and the same problems. And a lot of stories were far worse than mine. I just happened to write about mine. But the 12-step program, uh, for people who don't understand it, is a way to live life. For me, it, it's it's more it's as basic as the Ten Commandments as um, a way to live your life. And if anything, for me, the Ten Commandments that I grew up with, I grew up in the Jewish religion, and um, I love the religion. But you know, for me, I never connected with God. Um, I I view the Ten Commandments as Thou shalt not do this, otherwise you're going to be turned into a pillar of salt. And it was more of a threatening type of thing to me. I view God growing up as something I had to, you know, had to go to synagogue. I had to do these things. It wasn't something I really developed a, a real, he wasn't something I, something I really developed a connection with. And a lot of my problems, I'm sure, you know, looking back, were because I did not have a spiritual connection. And it wasn't until I... I really hit rock bottom, and I know God did this intentionally to me, was at some point in time he brings you to a point of desperation to where you have no choice. I think it was Abraham Lincoln who said that God brought me to my knees because there was nowhere else to go and other than to find him. And for me, that, that, was, that, um, you know, that was essentially what happened to me, was that he did bring me to my knees, and I had to reach that, the valley, and he may, I had to fall off the mountain and, and hit the valley and, and, uh, in order to turn my life around. And... Um, you know, you know I've grown up in the Jewish religion as well, but I've always been rather skeptical. And I guess, do you have to, I mean, with all you've been through and go, and obviously you're very committed to the 12, I mean, that's part of who you are now, the 12-step program and spirituality. But what about people who don't believe in God, who don't have the same kind of connection to a higher power? What do they do? Well, that's a great question. And I think a lot of people who go into Alcoholics Anonymous or any of the 12-step programs, Really have our um, agnostics or you know people who uh, don't um, really believe in God, and I think um, you know that there's a there's a book called Alcoholics Anonymous that uh, was written by its founders, and it addresses actually the agnostics or people who are who don't believe in God. And I think one of the things that the program asks is that you have an open mind and be willing to look at 
there being a higher power. And for some people, a higher power is not God. My higher power is God. And, um, you know, but for some people, it could be, um, you know, Buddha. It could be any any being. It could be actually, for some people, our higher power could be the AA group. It could be, as a, you know, somebody jokingly said to me, well, it could be a light bulb. But there has <laughs> to be something that you have to turn, learn to turn your life over to. And I think that, um, for me, my spiritual journey was an evolution for me because um, I really didn't believe in God for most of my life. I went through the motions, but I really didn't believe in him. And I felt that he had punished me unnecessarily because of the fact that I was abused growing up that, um, you know, by a friend, that I felt that he deserted me and that he was really not out to help me in my life. And it really wasn't until I started, that I hit bottom and entered the 12-step program that I really started to look at God differently. And um, it's... There was no burning bush for me that I said, aha, suddenly God is there. You know, I still had, I still questioned him. I still wondered if he was a punishing God or if he was a God of mercy. And um, I had to expand my uh, my awareness. I had to be willing to look at God as, an, as, as a possibility and not, not say that he is, you know, just not out there. And it, it is a leap of faith. Um, and for, it was a gradual process for me. My, this is the incredible spiritual transformation going through the 12-step program. It's really hard, very, very hard to put in words to a, to uh, another person. But it is a spiritual journey. And I think the important thing is if the first step is you have to be willing to admit that you have a problem and that your life is becoming manageable. And the second step is be willing to turn your life over to uh, to God and realize that only he could, could restore your life to sanity. Um, but what, how does this responsibility fit into that? Because as you're describing it, I understand the first part of it, like you have to first admit that you have a problem and that you have but the second part of it turning it over to a higher power does that take away your responsibility from doing what you have to do to either stop drinking or eating or taking drugs or you know actually for me turning my life but life over god's a liberating process it's been liberating for me because it i have always wanted to do things my way like you know a lot of physicians are want to be in control Okay, and I think a lot of us want to control our lives. That's and, not a surprise, uh, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, and I did a really bad job trying to control my life and <laughs> myself. My best way of doing, my best way of thinking and doing things, is what got me into trouble. And I think that, um, you know, I had uh, it wasn't until I turned my life over to God, and, and, um, and really, it's a liberating process because you realize that there is a power out there that will that will help you out. Is you have to want to help yourself. Um, there's a saying that faith moves mountains, but you have to bring the shovel. In other words, the 12 steps aren't just magical. You know, they just don't happen. You have to be willing to put the work in. You have to want to change your life and for the better. If you aren't willing to put the work in and work with a sponsor and do the steps, you know, it, this doesn't happen to you. And, do you uh, have, you have has there been a point, like, I mean, you've been do- how long have you been doing the 12-step program? Well, I've been sober six and a half years, thank God. Six and a half years. Uh, is there, and, and, and you've had no... Uh, has there been any time when you have kind of fallen back or fallen off the wagon? Or no, actually, I've been working with you know my sponsor and going to meetings on a regular basis. I still go to them, and um, my youngest son passed away two years ago. Uh, took his own life, and was I tempted to drink or use drugs at that time? I was really wanted to dull my pain <laughs> in almost uh-huh. any way, but I, I didn't. And the reason why I didn't is because I, I worked the 12 steps, and I have, you know, the, the program is one of 
uh, that you don't do by yourself. You do with other people. You have to want to reach out to others. And it's, it's essentially there's a, an extended family here with, when you work the 12 steps of other people in the program with you and who will be willing to do anything to reach out to you to help you. And so you were able, because, I mean, your son, your youngest son committed suicide two years ago. You said two and a half years ago. I mean, that's the worst probably thing that can happen to a person. I mean, and, and to be able to get through that, you had you and and not start uh, doing drugs again, um, which, like you said, could be very tempting. You had to really engage with your sponsor, with all with the people in the twelve step program. I mean, how did you handle that? Well, it, it's um, I was able to reach out to other people, and people really reached out to me, and. Um, I realized that uh, although it was tempting to use drugs or to drink at that time, that there, there are other options. And God gave me another chance and uh, to get my life back. And um, I don't, I, know, I realize I don't have. I'm going to run out of chances, eventually. And um, has, does it, does it hurt still that my son took his life? Absolutely. But I know I've got a very good support group of people around me, and it's important to have that support group. It, it's incredibly important to have a circle of friends that you could talk to, people who are very close to you, and you know, utilize those friendships. And um, a lot of people who are addicts or alcoholics isolate. They don't. They're afraid to reach out to other people. And that, for me, that's part of my problem for many, many years was isolating myself. Yeah, yeah afraid of being judged, feeling ashamed, all of those things. And so you get more and more isolated when you need to have more and more of a connection. Um, you know, Absolutely. you yeah. So, what is the solution? What you know for us as a society, for us individually? I mean, the statistics I've read are that our drug problems are becoming worse, not better. Yearly, if we aren't resolving the problem; they are they're exacerbated every year. Well, I think the first step is to realize the magnitude of the problem, is to understand addiction first of all, what addiction really is, and addiction is an insidious disease. Period. It's not a moral defect. And a lot of people don't recognize it as a disease. And um, I think it's, it, but you know, the medical societies uh, have come to recognize it as a, as a disease process. But people, a lot of people are still living many, many years back and uh, feel that there's something wrong with that person morally or ethically. So I think people need to, first of all, uh, do away with the stigma of the of addiction. I think that's important. And part of the reason I exposed my story was to try to help eliminate that stigma because it can happen. This can happen to any of us. I mean, it, it happens to the greatest, the mightiest, the most famous, um, and it happens to people that are poor and, and uh, in any profession. So it's a problem that's out there. And yes, it is an epidemic. And especially prescription drug uh, use is an epidemic and deaths from prescription drugs. It's scary to think that more people die from prescription drugs and from traffic accidents. That's a scary well, thing. But if you know, if you look on the news every night, that's all. I mean, all the advertisement. The pharmaceutical companies have all the money, the billions of dollars, and they're the ones who are advertising take a drug for anything that you, you think is wrong with you or may be wrong with you. I mean, so the marketing of these drugs is, is very powerful. Well, I think that there are, the, the solutions are, are complex. Uh, but you can address them from the standpoint of on a societal level and an individual level. And as a society, I think recognizing the problem is important. I think doing things to help... Uh, People uh, recognize it and can be able to, and basically try to induce them to come forward with their problems rather than make it a threatening situation to make it more of a situation where people are more likely to come forward for help. And um, so I think it all goes together. Um, and I think with the, within the medical profession itself, I think doctors should be randomly tested. I think their training should be more humane 
and I think doctors should be taught how to address their own problems and the problems of their patients without taking a pill. And I think uh, you have to take care of yourself before you take care of other people. And that's a lesson that I learned. I did. I took so much time taking care of others that I didn't take care of my own needs. You know, when you go on a plane, yep, first you your flight attendant tells you is put the oxygen on yourself first. You know, then put it on your kids. Uh-huh. Which goes and against I, everything that a mother would. It goes against all your instincts, actually. Yeah, Very- the first instinct is to go towards your kids. And I, for me, my patients came first. I put my patients before. You know myself and before my family a lot of times, and I think that um, that's that's a mistake. I think from I ne- if you neglect your own problems, they're going to stay there. They're going to get worse over time to the point where they become unmanageable and really, really wreck your wreck your life and the lives of people around you. I mean, for me, my family, my whole family was devastated by what happened to me, and I realized that my disease affected many, many people way beyond myself. And uh, and that's Are they uh, able to talk to you openly now about your disease, about your addiction, your family members? Well, one of the, one of the things that um, the blessings of sobriety for me has been the fact that I'm very I'm closer to my children now than I've ever been. And we've talked these things through and you know, we were very, you know, I had a kind of a strained relationship for a number of years, I think. And a lot of it was related to the addiction, my addiction problems. And I've become, addiction draws you away from people you love. It doesn't push you towards, it draws you away and threatens us, that bond. But my children have, and I have a very, very close relationship. So one of the points I like to make to people is if, if addiction has, you know, you know, alienated you from your family, that can be changed. That can be reversed. Because some people feel that I've irreversibly damaged my relationships uh, with the people around me. The people who are close in your lives are, are going to be there for you. Uh, you know, a lot of the, your true friends walk in when others walk out. Okay. And you are you really ever can... afraid that your kids or anyone? How many children do you have? I have four. Well, I have three. My, my youngest son, I still call Matt. My, <laughs> I count him in there even though he's not here. But, yeah, I've got four children. Okay. Three you boys four... and a girl. And are, do you ever worry that any one of them will fall into the same situation that you did, become addicted? I mean, do you, is that something that is a concern? Uh, yes, it is. And I think that um, we've talked about that. My children and I have talked about that. And I think they have realized, through my example, how dangerous this is. And hopefully I've kind of taught them, in a sense, what not to do. Um, but I see some of the same traits of, my, you know, that I, of myself um, and, and my children. And I think that... And one of the things I try, I'm going to try to do with them as they go further in their lives is try to help them recognize um, these these issues and to, you know, help them if it looks like there's there and there's any threat towards them going towards using alcohol or or drugs. But I have a lot of faith in them that I you know if, even though this can happen to any of us this problem, but I'm going to be right there with them trying to help them step by step. And my own problems have really opened my eyes to the nature of this disease and how insidious it is and. I think it'll help me get them through difficult times in their lives. Yeah. Well, you know, as a social worker, I think just the the first step or the step, if you're talking, if the di- you have a dialogue with them, if you can talk about it, and you've talked about your obviously you've shared, you know, your experiences with them. I think that does it. I mean, because they're not going to feel like isolated and afraid and fearful that you would judge them. So the 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 door is open. I mean, I, it it seems to me for any one of your children. Um, in terms of the way you're describing your relationship with them now? Well, you know, you, you mentioned a key word, which is judging, and I think that um, we have a very judgmental society as well. And I think we tend to judge people too quickly, and, um, you know, I think label, give them labels, 
that sometimes they're really undeserved. And very often, um, although we have a very forgiving society in a lot of respects, a lot of times we don't want to, uh, we will label somebody as having a problem and really not, and judge them and not make it safe for them to come forward. My children know that I love them and that I won't judge them. Um, you know, when we judge other people, we're really judging ourselves. And I think that uh, one of the, really the keys for me in this program is that it's taught me to not judge others, to try to really not be judgmental because, you know, I've realized what it's like to be judged. Um, when I went through my in my darkest hours with my career, I was on television, I was on the radio broadcast, I was on um, the newspapers as a physician who lost it all. And I was publicly humiliated. And um, and I went from being a very prominent physician in my community to being a uh, pariah, basically, overnight. And um, I felt the judgment around me, and it was, it was painful. And um, I realized that uh, everybody is human, and I think that... Um, you know, that everybody has the potential to develop this problem. And what I want to try to do through my book is to help others come forward and, and to recognize that there is a solution to this, that we, we have the capacity to change our lives. Uh, addiction does not have to be a death sentence. Yeah, well, your book is, very, is a very important piece that I think does just that. And uh, I want you, because we have a minute left, so give us the website that readers uh, well, readers, so they can read your book, that they can go to. You can buy the book, Amazon, bookstores everywhere, I assume. But there's also um, websites that they can connect with you and the book, Dr. Steve Farber, um, Sick as Our Secrets. Well, the website is www.sickasoursecrets.com. And um, that website describes the book, and, it, and you can pay, buy it through PayPal on that site. But it's, it's, and it's very easily uh, available at uh, uh, Amazon and, and BarnesandNoble.com as well. And there is a Facebook page for my book. Uh, but, um, you know, it, it's there for people who, a lot of people who approach me about this book are family members of people who have addiction. Uh, it's interesting. What I've found that when you come forward with your problems, that people are more likely to come to you and talk about them. Yes, yeah. well, they trust um, you. Yeah, they do trust me. No, they they know trust you, and I think that's the key. We have to say goodbye. It's been really a pleasure talking to you. I'm glad we had this whole hour to talk, um, and I really thank you so much for being on the show. Um, and I, Dr. Steve Farber, I keep mentioning the book because we want people to get out there and read it, Sick as Our Secrets. Well, I appreciate you having me on the air today. This has been an awesome interview. Thank you very thank much. Thank you. Thanks, Steve. Dr. Steve Farber. We're going to say goodbye. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.